Mormon Women Project at www.mormonwomen.com. Hello, this is Meredith Nelson with the Mormon Women Project. I'm so excited to share this interview with Rachel Hunt Steenblick, author of Mother's Milk, Poems in Search of Heavenly Mother, illustrated by Ashley May Hoyland. In this podcast, Rachel and I talk about the fading taboo of talking about Heavenly Mother, about Rachel's own research and personal searching regarding Mother in Heaven, and about the lovely small poems she wrote to illuminate this searching. Now, the sound quality on this podcast isn't ideal because we dealt with some technology failure, which combined with scheduling complications meant a subpar recording. But you'll get used to it fast, and I guarantee you'll be glad you listened. You'll also hear Rachel's daughter Cora in the background at some point. I left this in while I was editing the podcast because I think it really beautifully illustrates Rachel's ability to embrace her and, in the words of aspiring Mormon women founder Naomi Watkins, and um, you'll hear her talk about that a little bit too in the podcast. One last thing, this week we are running our fall fundraiser for the Mormon Women Project. If you enjoy these podcasts or our hundreds of online interviews or our Sunday school supplements or Pinterest quotes of Mormon women, please donate whatever you can at www.mormonwomen.com. Um, just click donate on the homepage. Some of what we raise might even go toward podcasting equipment. <laughs> Thank you so much for your support. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Mormon Women Project. I'm really, really excited about this conversation because I have so enjoyed reading your poetry the last few weeks since your book came out. And it's really great for someone like me who's busy with a baby and a five-year-old um, because they're so short. <laughs> and so I can literally read one in a few seconds and then think about it for the next hour while I don't have time to read. So I wanted to start off just breaking the ice talking about talking about Heavenly Mother because in my experience, there's still discomfort among Latter-day Saints, maybe waning discomfort around discussion of Heavenly Mother. And I know the first time that I started really questioning whether whether that taboo of speaking about her was right or not was when I read a few years ago David Paulson's article, A Mother There, which I know you were a researcher on that project. So I was so I'd love it if you could talk to me about that experience and about where we stand today as a people in relation to conversations about Heavenly Mother. Those are such good questions and such a good introduction. Even the very first thing you said about how they're so little that you have time to read them, that's the only way that I could write them. Like it's, it's why one of the reasons why it took the form that it did, the things that I had to say, because I could only write in very short bursts as well. And so I went to BYU for my undergraduate studies. I studied philosophy primarily while I was a student there. And my very last year, I ended up working in the archives of Harold B. Lee's library and the special collections, archiving Hugh Nibley's papers and correspondence. And then as soon as I graduated, I was no longer able to be a student worker for them. And a philosophy professor that I'd had many classes for named David Paulson invited me to be a research assistant for him. And he got special permission for me to be hired as full-time staff, even though I was in this funny place where I was no longer a student. So I wasn't a student researcher, but I was just a step above it as, as BYU staff is what my payroll said. 
And so for four months, I worked for him full time, researching Heavenly Mother from six to eight hours every day for that time. Mm. And I worked alongside another student who's listed as the co-author on the paper that was eventually published named Martin Toledo. He was actually living in Spain that summer, so we worked primarily over emails, and I was still in Provo, so I'd meet with David Paulson every week, and we'd talk about the things that Martin and I were finding in the work that we were doing. And he had gone, David Paulson, the professor, had gotten a grant from the Women's Research Institute that the next year ended up being either dismantled or being changed, but they had given him money to do this project to research this idea of the divine feminine in the Mormon world, the Mormon conception of this divine female deity. And so I started just on LDS.org's own website, and I didn't find very many things at first. I tried many search terms. I tried Heavenly Mother, and I think six things came up. And I tried to expand it to Mother in Heaven or Eternal Mother, and still not a lot of things came up, but a few more. And then I tried Heavenly Parents, and lots and lots and lots of things came up. But I was still sort of discouraged because I felt like there had to be more, but I didn't know where to look. And then David Paulson introduced me to a database called Gospel Link that sort of aggregated a lot of church resources over the years. And this database had hundreds of things about Heavenly Mother. But I that altogether, there's close to 200, I think. I wish I could remember the exact number. But so I spent that summer reading every single thing that came up. Some of them were chapters. Some of them were old journal of discourses. Some of them were general conference talks by people like Spencer W. Campbell and Neil A. Maxwell. Some of them were book pieces by Chieko Okazaki and Desert published books that she'd written. And some of them were from very early leaders of the church, like Orson F. Whitney and Erastus No. And they said quite beautiful and quite meaningful things about her. So the discouragement that I initially felt in the search sort of gave way to something else, where, where I had the same sense that people didn't know that we could talk about her. But then all of a sudden, I'm finding that there's so much that could be said. And so it became a really interesting thing to have that balance of why this feeling has persisted for so long. And because I think I, too, like so many, had been taught by leaders when I was young that that we just weren't supposed to talk about her. And so I think that that statement or that idea was well-meaning. But I was coming to learn in my research that it wasn't based in fact. And so in the BYU Studies research and in the paper that was ultimately published, we did find a very small number of things saying that same idea that perhaps she's too sacred to talk about. But one of the earliest ones, Linda Wilcox discovered was a 20th century seminary teacher. Another one was someone who worked in church priesthood but wasn't a general authority. And in fact, we found many statements by general authorities actually talking about her. And so that gave us a lot of comfort and a lot of courage to go forward with the project, just seeing how much there was that had been said and being able to map which years and which decades there were more things and what types of things they were saying. And so that sort of became the thesis of the paper, was just looking at this history 
about the seeming silence and if it was real and where it came from and trying to help members understand that it is more of a folk doctrine that's not based in things from the highest leaders that are chosen by God and just that it didn't match what we felt like this spirit was teaching us ourselves. And so that project was just one start to open up the way for many more. And since that time, LDS.org's Gospel Topic Essays in the Church History section. Sorry, my daughter just found the other microphone. Hey, Corey, you can't talk right now, honey. Corey, come with me. They So in the Church History Library, the Gospel Topics essay, there's one called Becoming Like God that references the BYU Studies article Mother There, and then, of course, the one called Mother in Heaven. And I just noticed just today that there's a new era piece from the same year in March that asks, why don't we know more about Heavenly Mother? And so she's being talked about more in official public things, including asking those questions. It was really helpful to me to see how often she actually had been talked about when I read that article. And I'm really pleased to see this this movement of more people asking questions and and talking respectfully and carefully about our Heavenly Mother. There's also a book that we reviewed um, last year by MacArthur Krishna and Bethany Brady Spaulding, Our Heavenly Family, Our Earthly Families, that talks about our heavenly parents. And it's a children's book published by Deseret Book, and it uses a lot of quotes from general authorities and apostles and prophets and general female leaders of the church about our heavenly mother and our heavenly parents. So I'm I'm optimistic in this this exploration that I think we're all sort of tentatively engaging in as a church. They ended up giving me a copy of that book to thank me for the research that I had done because they ended up using quite a few passages from it. A lot of the quotations that they pulled came from there, which I really love that they took something that we tried to make accessible and made it even more so. And the images of Heavenly Mother, the visible art was such a beautiful gift, too. Yeah, really, really beautiful. That art's by Caitlin Connolly. And your book has beautiful artwork in it, too, by Ashme Hoyland. Tell me about why you chose Ashme. What, what do you love about her artwork? Why is it there in the book? So Ashme and I went to BYU together. We were part of the same friendship discussion night group that met every Wednesday for several years. And I think we met each other right after we had both come home from our mission. And we became really good friends. And we were friends this period while I was studying Heavenly Mother for BYU, for that article and for the speech that was given previously. And so I would talk with her and these other friends at this discussion night about the things that I was learning. And she's told me recently as we've done this project together that at first she was a little bit hesitant to hear me talk about this because she didn't know that it was okay. And then it took her a while and she mostly would just listen at first and think about the things that I would say. And it took her a little bit more time to be able to start talking about Heavenly Mother or Heavenly Parents herself in church settings or by herself and with her family. But as she did, she felt really calm about it and felt like it was really right. And like, like me saying that it was okay to do, like she felt like it was okay to do. And then with the BYU Studies article, that gave her more assurance as well. But I've also just been a big fan of her artwork. And she's also just such a thoughtful person.
person and I've always dreamed of doing a project with her. Mm. And Ashmi is not a bad poet herself. <laughs> and maybe some of your listeners are familiar with her book that BYU's Maxwell Institute published with their Living Face series called 100 Birds Taught Me to Fly. She both wrote and illustrated that book. It's a memoir source with very short stories that are, that are themselves quite poetic and kind of long prose poems. The facelessness is interesting. I know that's a style that Ashmi has worked with in the past, but tell me about that. In this book, all of the women and children in the book are faceless, or you just see the shape of the face. Yeah, so the way that Ashley has described the pictures that she did for this book and the way that it started was after she said yes, she'd like to work on this project, she emailed me and asked me to send her pictures of women that were important to me in my life especially female ancestors. And so I did. I sent her pictures of my mom and my sisters, myself as a little girl, myself with my daughter now and with my baby son, and an aunt that passed away and great-grandmas and these different people and some really close female friends. And then Ashley used those pictures to start with that she she thought for a while of whether she should try to make the pictures match more exactly the specific poems. And there are a few where she did that. But more generally, she just used women that were important to me to start. And then a few women that were important to her as well as her own daughter and son are in the book too. And she just really wanted to do really simple drawings and just these outline sketches where it's more profiles and the drawing method where you just keep your hands and your pen on the page without lifting it, that that felt really important to her to kind of just do these rough sketch drawings so where the proportions might not always be perfect, it might be a little funny. Um, but she just really wanted to keep it simple and just kind of the idea of something there and even this idea of the concreteness and binding us to, this, to something else. And even, she hasn't expressed it quite like this, but I feel like that she wanted to choose real women in my life to show that this is one of the places we can look for inspiration about Heavenly Mother, or that, like Joseph Smith in the King Fault Discourse has the famous phrase about how we don't really know ourselves unless we know God. And I feel like it might go the other way too, that we can know God by knowing ourselves. And that for me is a woman trying to know God the Mother, that this becomes really important, that, that I can look to myself to learn about her, but I can also look to my mom or to my daughter and the things that they teach me. And so the pictures are especially especially meaningful to me. But one of the things that I've been the most pleased with and the most surprised by, there's something that I could never have dreamed of, is that friends have shown me videos and pictures of them reading my book to their children and showing the pictures to them. And I really honestly just wanted the pictures because I love them for myself and a friend had suggested mm-hmm. that it could be a great way to do it that I had no idea that this would make it more accessible to little children but mm-hmm. I'm so happy that it has mm-hmm. yeah absolutely is that your daughter Cora on the cover um yes yeah that- and that was a surprise too because that was not a picture that I sent her she found it on my Instagram oh, and then wow. on the back the ISBN um the number kind of covers it, but I'm nursing my son. So on the back, yeah. it's me and my baby, and then the front is my daughter. You mentioned Joseph Smith's King Fallout statement about coming to know 
ourselves by coming to know God. And you have a poem about that called What Joseph Taught Me. So I want to ask, do you feel like you comprehend yourself better now than when you began this journey to understand Heavenly Mother? This book is as much about you as it is about her, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very, very personal book. It's sort of the first week that it came out, it felt very vulnerable to think that this project that I had been working on just months after my daughter was born, and now she is almost four, in just two months she'll be that age. And so it's been such a slow process and a long process and just little bits at a time that I'd be able to work on it or that I'd have ideas come to me and just write them down, usually in my phone, and then try to make them more real and fleshed out later. That So these poems have been sitting with me and in my mind and heart for years. I've been carrying them. And then now to know that people are reading them like felt very different because it is a lot about me, but it is also about my relationship being a mother. And I've been thinking a lot about that, too, because I don't think that only people who are mothers should read this book. And I don't think that only people who are mothers can get insights into Heavenly Mother. But I feel like it's more like whatever stage of life you're at, God can talk to you at that stage. And I really love the scriptures that say that God talks to us in ways we understand and values plainness and simplicity and simple language. And so for me, this is just where I am right now. I'm the mother of a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And so I trust that God can talk to me now. And so when these impressions come, I just follow them and I, I record them. Um, and the poem that you mentioned, what Joseph taught me, it's really simple. It says, if women do not comprehend the character of God the mother, they do not comprehend themselves. And I definitely feel like thinking about Heavenly Mother and writing about her has helped me to see myself better in some ways more charitably and more patiently even as the process of the things that I'm trying to do in my life. But there are, there are moments in my son's birth that felt really difficult for me, where when my daughter was born, I felt a lot of peace, and I felt like my prayers that I would give during her birth itself were answered immediately, that I would pray to feel ancestors' love and to feel them close, and I'd pray to feel Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother's love, and I felt them really, really close. And there was a moment where my doula had gotten lost. She wasn't quite there yet. My husband ran out to go try to find her. And my midwives weren't there yet. And I think it was when I was in transition. So I was all of the way alone in the most intense part of the birth. And then I prayed to be supported and comforted. And, and then I was. And I wrote a poem about that experience, too, from my daughter Cora's birth called Heavenly Doula that said, God's spirit, God's breath, one he could not live without, gave me breath and I gave my daughter life. She sat beside me on the precipice so I would not be alone. We exhaled and inhaled in unison. She whispered, calling me by name. So that was the experience that I'd had with my daughter giving birth to her. But then when I gave birth to my son, it didn't quite go like that, that I would pray and pray, even literally to be delivered. And then... Um, I just had the impression, I basically felt nothing. And so I, I felt a lot of fear that I felt fear, and I felt guilty that I felt fear because it was so different than the experience that I'd had before where I felt so empowered and so strong and so protected and cared for. Um, and then all of a sudden I just had this impression, very strong, like even words coming to me saying the door is you, and just recognizing that this task before me 
my lovely midwife was there who happened to be a Mormon woman herself. I was the first Mormon that she had helped deliver with. I gave birth to my children at home. And she had never been able to attend the birth of a Mormon sister, and she had been praying desperately to be able to do it. And then it turns out that when I moved into this town, she was the only one with her partner ended up do home births. And so her prayer was answered, and my prayer was answered. And she was the loveliest, kind of hippie, great Mormon woman. <laughs> and I, she was smiling beatifically at me and looked like this angel and was so supportive that even she couldn't do it for me. My husband who was offering me back support couldn't do it for me. And so I wrote a poem from this experience called The Hour She Learned She Was God. When her hour came, she prayed to be delivered before remembering the deliverer was she. And so without my son's birth experience, I couldn't have written that poem. But I also did feel like it taught me something important, both about Heavenly Mother and about myself, that this power of deliverance that is in Christ, and I think also in the Father, that she has these bits of this power too, that she is the deliverer in her own right in thinking not just of women who physically give birth, because I know not every woman has that experience, but that there are times where we have to be the deliverers for ourselves. And I think that she's come before and done that as well, and that she understands that. And so ultimately, being able to think of it in this way helped me not feel as alone as I had during the birth moment itself. But it also helped, it helped me understand myself better and the power and strength that I did have, that though it felt different than the strength I had in my daughter's birth, it was still just as real. Mm. I love those stories. I am a birth doula and postpartum doula professionally. And um, so I really latched onto those ones because they are, they're just perfect descriptions of, of what it's like. I think a lot of women reach that point in their labor where they're praying to be delivered and they have to do it themselves <laughs> and with, you know, hopefully a lot of good support, but really, really beautiful poems on that same topic one of the most important poems to me was entitled Mirror Image. And you, it says, it is difficult to say now if she was created in my image or I in hers. What is easy to say now is when I look inside a mirror, I see God. With virtually no scripture to rely on and without a sacred grove kind of experience, we don't know how much we are projecting our own ideals and experiences of motherhood and womanhood on the image of Heavenly Mother. But as this poem so beautifully demonstrates, we, we do believe that we came from her and that what she is, we will become. And that tells us a lot. I think so too. I also want to, I mean, that word deliverer in, in the hour she learned she was God. That's a, a word we often apply to Jesus. And he shows up a lot in, in these poems, not always by name, but I kept finding him. There's one poem called Communion that, let me see if I can find it here. You probably can quote it. Oh, it says, the mother offered me her breast saying, this is my body, take, eat. Jesus as mother is an old theme, right, in Christian theology. But whatever we don't know about our Heavenly Mother, we do see in Jesus a mothering God, the way that he bore the sins of the world and delivered mankind to eternal life and the way that he nourished and taught and healed. 
um, the children of God. So I wondered if you could talk about that concept of the mothering Jesus. I'd be so happy to. I also want to share, I wish I had the quote with me, but there was a passage that I read when I was researching for BYU by a woman named Catherine Schertz that really influenced the way that I thought about Heavenly Mother and the relationship between her and Christ and her relationship with us and how I can think about her and look for her. Was She quoted the passage in the Bible where one of the disciples, I think, is looking to know more of the Father and then Christ says, like, have you been so long with me that you haven't seen the Father? And then he said, like, just basically says that he shows the Father, that the Father is kind of in him. And then she said maybe he could also say it the other way, that that we can learn about Heavenly Mother by looking at him as well. And so part, like, here it is again, kind of that projection of what we see on Earth, that in physical birth and physical parenthood, we have traits from both our mo- our mother and our father. And so I look at the things that I have from my mom and my dad. I have my mom's blue eyes and I have my dad's curly hair and kind of big nose. And so I have these physical traits from them, but I have other traits too, like characteristics of in- intelligence or other things that are in them that are in me to some level too. And so just thinking like, oh yeah, like maybe we can also look to Christ to show us the mother. And thinking about the way that general authorities talk about Heavenly Mother now when they speak of her in conference, it's almost always mirroring the language of the family proclamation, where it says that we're that we're beloved children of Heavenly Parents. And so they use that phrase, Heavenly Parents, to include both the father and the mother together. And for me, that shows such a unity that they must have between them. And so I don't think that they're exactly alike, and I don't think they share all the same attributes. But just thinking that that Christ came to show us the will of the Father, but he might have also come to show us the will of the Mother. And so looking at him, and then even remembering that there's so many times in the Bible where he is mentioned in these female terms or female words. And one of them that is really meaningful to me is about a mother bird or a mother hen who wants to nurture her children she gathers them under their wings and sometimes they won't let her comfort them and then there's also a time in the bible where christ is described as a mother bear and another time as a mother eagle and we also have these scriptures about milk and honey and and giving milk and honey without money and without price and then thinking about who does this but mothers that gives milk without money and without price from their own body and even thinking of the sacrament that we take each week I'm thinking of the scriptures where Christ is speaking about this and he's offering his body and his blood in the Last Supper. But then thinking to that literally when I nurse my children or when other women nurse their children from their bodies, that this is what they're doing. They're saying, this is, this is my body, take and eat. And mm-hmm. so there are just so many moments like that where like Christ does teach us about the mother. And the book is Mother's Milk, where it's about some of those same scriptures and themes that I really love the scriptures about Christ as a nursing mother or about the passages that say, like, there will be a king that's a nursing king and then a mother that's a nursing mother, that's a queen. And so thinking what would those mean, but then also thinking what would it mean, like, what would heavenly mother's milk be and what would that nourishment that I need from heaven that is different than the milk that I give to my son now? And just that it might be her wisdom or her love or her presence, like the things 
that with my son, I offer him my presence and I offer him my physical self right there, feeding him, but thinking, what do I need to be fed from my mother in heaven? And so, so those parts were really meaningful to me, even looking at the whole book. But I think that Christ does teach us so much about the mother. And there's another really beautiful passage about how Christ learned how to nourish us or how to comfort us, I mean. So there's another beautiful passage in the scripture about one whom is mother comforted. And I have a poem inspired by this that just said, she showed her son how to mother so he could show the world, which felt really true to me. But there are so many other things. And so I have a whole section that's almost inspired by Jesus or this relationship. And one of the other ones that is one of my favorite poems in general is called First Miracles. It says, the son's first miracle is changing water into wine. Mother's first miracle is changing water into milk. She nourishes us all. And they're, they're, like one of the very last poems that I ended up writing was called Mother Tree, and it was inspired by a friend named Amber Richardson, who very, very recently has performed Carol and Pearson's play about the search for Heavenly Mother called Mother Wove the Morning that Carolyn performed herself many, many years ago. And then Amber has done it with a team of eight people, I believe, for the 16 parts. And she was writing about her experience, thinking about Heavenly Mother and performing about Heavenly Mother, and even asking some of those questions, like, is it okay that she's doing this? And then she said that she reread Jacob 5 in the Book of Mormon about the tree, the olive tree. And she said that while she was reading it, she saw that it was centered about a mother tree that needed to be returned to and that there needed to be this balance and that she thought as long as there was this balance that this was the point. And so she felt comforted and felt like this was a good path to take. And so I didn't remember a mother tree from the story. I remember the story and the beautiful part about Jesus or the Lord of the vineyard weeping and saying, what more could I have done for my vineyard? But then after I read it, like it literally says the phrase mother tree at least twice, I believe, and talks about how the Lord of the vineyard like brings her back to her children and her children back to her. And so with her permission, I ended up writing a poem inspired by this as well, and, and it, that's become really meaningful for me to think about this too. So it's the last one I read about the Jesus Heavenly Mother connection, but it's called Mother Tree. After nourishing and digging and pruning and dunging and weeping, the Lord of the vineyard remembered the Mother Tree. He brought her back to her children, then her children back to her, grafting branches into branches. Their togetherness preserved natural branches and roots and the roots of their Mother Tree. She bore good fruit. Hmm. I love that. And that that tree imagery shows up a lot in your book. I love the poem called The Tree of Life or just Tree of Life, which is also about Jesus's relationship with his mother. If you don't mind, I'll read that. It says, when Jesus was on the cross, his father might have been in the farthest reaches of heaven for sorrow and solace. We can give him that. His mother might have been right there, branches holding him a weeping willow, the tree of life. So beautiful, Rachel. I actually wept when I read that because of that amazing imagery of her being his comforter um, during that time. You talked about how your friend inspired the poem about the vineyard. So many of your poems are titled, What So-and-So Taught Me. Um, With the same idea that I've kind of talked about already with Joseph Smith's teaching that we can know more about ourselves by knowing God that I think works the other way too, that we can know 
God by knowing ourselves. But I really have just looked for her and other people as I've looked for her in whatever I'm doing or whatever I'm reading or thinking about. So there are poems inspired by children's books like Where the Wild Things Are and The Very Hungry Caterpillar and children's games like Peekaboo and Marco Polo. But there are also so many poems inspired by real people. And some of them are people that I read their words in books. And some of those same people I do know in person. Like Adam Miller is an example of one that it wasn't in a conversation, but it was from his book, Letters to a Young Mormon. And I'll find that one really fast. It says what Adam taught me. And it said, she is not silent. She is quiet. To hear her, you must be very still. And I have a notes section at the end of my book, which is maybe not so common for a poetry book, but I did see one example before and I thought it fit really well because I wanted I wanted to be able to share the scriptures that I was inspired by and to share the, the other parts of where this book came from. So if people were curious that it would be available to them. And I had written that one so long ago, I couldn't remember if I was directly quoting him or if I was just inspired. So I him and he message I was talking about and sent it back to me. And it's from his book, Letters to Young Mormon, again, also published by Maxwell Institute and the Living Things series that Ashley's book is. And he wrote, you may discover that God's silence is not itself a rebuke, but an invitation. The heavens aren't empty, they're quiet. And then he continues that God, rather than turning you away, may be inviting you to share the silence. So he wasn't specifically talking about Heavenly Mother. I think he was talking maybe more about God the Father. So in the next line, he has the word him. But it was so powerful to me, just that sentence, the heavens aren't empty, they're quiet. And so we do wonder a lot about the silence of Heavenly Mother or the ability to communicate with her or to be close to her. And so I just loved this idea that she's not silent, that she's quiet, and that she in the heavens is not silent or empty, but quiet. And so that's an example of one. Some others are just um, conversations with friends or things that are in there. Like I have one from my friend Katie. It's called Mother Bear. Katie taught me to envision Heavenly Mother as the mother bear, fierce and tender for her cubs. She even drew a picture. And I think we were in Salem, Massachusetts, where the witch trials were. And we were there for this winter ice sculpture festival together. And we were waiting, I think, for our bus home back to Boston or our train back home. And we were just talking about how we conceived of Heavenly Mother as one does or as apparently I do with my friends. And this is how she thought of her. And I just love that so much because I like, I think just thinking of Heavenly Mother only as this nurturing being isn't actually very helpful or insightful. But then the mother bear idea that there actually is scriptural precedent for in the Bible, like thinking of her as both so gentle, but also so fierce and needed was so helpful to me. Mm-hmm. And so it felt worth writing down. Um, and another, the one right below that is called What Emily Taught Me. And it was inspired by Emily Clyde Curtis, who helped co-found the Exponent blog. And it just, I think she was talking about her own feelings about her job as a mother to her children but the poem just said perfection is not her goal love is and that struck me really deeply too about how my mother might feel about her relationship with us or what she thinks her job is as a mother so they're just like such tiny moments so meaningful to me that I just wrote them down and gathered them and mm-hmm. part of the work that I did just felt being receptive to looking for her where she might be and seeing that people 
can teach me. And then another is that has felt really meaningful this week with some of the race relations in the United States very recently is one by a woman named Janan, who's about to start divinity school at Harvard for her PhD. And she gave a speech at Harvard last year for a conference that Richard Bushman started called Faith and Knowledge. And her she later published it at by Common Consensus blog, and it was titled Heavenly Mother is the Black Woman. And then it looks at womanist theology and womanism. And it's a beautiful, beautiful essay. But with her permission, I wrote a poem that's very, very simple as well, but it's directly inspires and quotes the first part, that it just says, Heavenly Mother is the Black Woman with Black Woman Magic. And so just thinking more expansively about what Heavenly Mother looks like or is, too. I don't, I don't know most of these things. They're creative imaginings or trying to listen to the spirit and feel, but just these things that can teach me, like one, one aspect of her, one side of the truth, that all together feel like something really meaningful to me personally. Yeah, you you write in one of your poems, I stand on the shoulders of giant-souled writers. And it's evident through so many poems where you mention these people that this is a really communal seeking that a lot of people are taking part of. And I love seeing so many seekers weaving in and out of the book. Like even just in that poem itself, and then in the note, I have a list of who some of the specific people I have in mind. But even to recognize, I'm not the first person to ask questions about Heavenly Mother or try to find her. And I'm not even the first to try to do it in poetry, that we have Eliza R. Snow and W.W. Phelps and Orson F. Whitney and others. Like, this is a form for asking questions about Heavenly Mother that we have precedent for in our church. This is one of the best ways that we can do it. That lets us ask more or think of more or imagine more. And so I wanted to honor them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the notes section is really valuable, by the way. I hope everyone takes the time because I read through it all um, and it drew me further, you know, in the search. Like, oh, I want to read more about what this person said or I've got to check out this book. So it's a really valuable addition. So there's a, a contrast in your poems between the silence you were talking about and yeah. separation and detachment. Um, it exhibits itself in um, poems about weaning and crying and forgetting and absence. And then on the other hand, there are lots of poems about about real presence and love and hugging and kissing, um, nursing, singing lullabies and laughing. So talk about that, this contrast between these two extremes. So you mentioned crying and weaning. There are a lot of poems about that. So I just talked about things that friends taught me, and I should have mentioned that my biggest teacher was my daughter, Cora, and then more recently my son, Soren. And my son can only say a few words, but I feel like they taught me a lot in their crying and in their reaching and their looking for me. And so I have one poem about Soren, in addition to the birthing one that I already shared but that sons also reach for their mother or search for their mother, that it isn't just daughters. So that's one important thing that he taught me. But there are moments where I, where my daughter Cora was crying for me, and then I would just have these, these feelings, or I would say words to her, and then feel like, oh, this could be what it's like. And one of them um, was while I was taking a shower, 
I've shared this story a few other places that people might have heard, but it's called Veil, and it said, when my daughter cried for me as I showered, I gave her soft words. I'm right here. I'm just on the other side of the curtain. And suddenly I knew my mother was. And so it's about, it's very literal from the experience that I had where I was taking a shower and my toddler daughter was standing in the bathroom so close to me, less than two feet away, and she's screaming for me because she can't see me. And so I'm trying to comfort her. I still really want to take the shower. It felt very valuable. Um, But I'm trying to comfort her and assure her that I'm close. And then just recognizing like, oh, Heavenly Mother could really just be on the other side of the veil two feet away from us saying, I'm right here, I'm just on the other side of the veil. And that this same care and the same love where she's trying to comfort us and assure us it's okay that we don't need to see this cry. And so some of the things come from that. And then the weaning experiences as well. But I, so when I was, I wrote many of these poems the year that my daughter Cora was born. And then I wrote, and I just kept writing them. So they gathered and gathered till I had almost 300 and about 240 or a few more are published in this collection. But I was stuck starting last year on the organization of how to make it an actual book instead of just this collection of poems that I'd written in this order that may or may not make sense to a reader picking it up or for it to feel like an actual book. And so I, I sent it out to a few friends and asked them for their feedback, both on which poems meant something to them and then also on ideas that they might have for how I could order it in a way that would make sense. And one friend suggested that I try to do it in a progress progression. And his idea was to think of it like placing Heavenly Mother in before creation or existence and then in creation and then in birth and infancy and childhood and young womanhood and then womanhood. And I loved the idea of, of this progression. But I realized that the order of progression that made sense to me was the hunger that I started with when I first started reaching for Heavenly Mother and thinking, or just even started researching and thinking about her and feeling that hunger and absence. And I felt like that so many friends that I had talked to about this, that's where they were too, or where they had started at least. And that that's what we could share, what resonated with them. So I wanted to start, and it's sort of sad to say I wanted to start in a hopeless place, because I don't think it's entirely hopeless, but I wanted to start with this hunger that comes first. And then I wanted to move to this place that I've come to where I do feel more hope and I feel more presence from her. So this, the chapters are organized in that way. The first is called The Hunger. The second is called The Reaching, where more of the, I guess, trying to find her and trying to look for her. And then the second is called The Learning, where I place a lot of the poems that you mentioned that start with what so-and-so taught me or where a lot of the poems inspired by scriptures are. And so that's actually the largest section is the learning. And then the fourth one is called the nourishing, where I do feel more of that presence and or the hugs and the kisses that you mentioned or the being filled. And so some of those come from conversations with my daughter, too, or words that I said to them, where I'm trying to see if I can find an example of it, but where I can just describe them, where there are moments like where right before I'd walk out of the room to my daughter, I would just say, like, mommy's coming right back. I'm close. I love you. Like, I won't forget you. Just because she'd be so afraid just to have me walk out of the room when she was so small. And then I'd come back and say, like, I did not forget you. And then I'd kiss her. And they are just really simple things that I actually said to my daughter at some point. And then I just wrote down. So I said, I can picture this. And even the idea of, like, parents and separation anxiety with their 
children, that the children have. There's one poem where I say that Heavenly Mother feels a separation anxiety about us too, and partly because she hears us reaching out for her and wants to comfort us. Um, but one of the poems, it's just called Return. Well, first I'll read one about Eliza. The spirit of Eliza, Eliza the prophetess came and turned the heart of the mother to her children and the hearts of the children to their mother. And I have another one a little bit after that called Return. When I turned my heart to my mother, her heart turned toward me. And this almost encapsulates the whole project that as I have reached out for her in my longing or just tried to be more thoughtful and look for her, that I have, I have felt answers come. And sometimes they've been very, very small, and sometimes it's just the comfort or just the feeling. And I have another poem that says something like, a fire is burning, and it just says sometimes the desire to feel close to her is its own warmth. Sometimes it's enough. Mm-hmm. And so just, um, yeah, so I feel, I, I haven't had a vision of her like Joseph Smith had with the father and the son. I haven't had that experience. Um, but I have felt guided along this quest. And with so many of those poems, I've described before that they've just felt very given to me, that I felt like I was just conduit to write them down because I was open. Um, and even the very first poem that I wrote about Heavenly Mother was for an art and poetry contest that Martin Polito and Caroline Klein organized to help create more art and more words about Heavenly Mother. And I didn't consider myself a poet. I just considered myself a writer. But with a friend's encouragement, I wrote one poem. And I went to sleep that night and then dreamed that I'd written four more and was standing at a pulpit reading the set of five poems. And then that was what started me writing more and more because they just kept coming. So I just kept writing them down. But then since that time, I've had, I've had two more dreams, not of Heavenly Mother, but about this project and about writing poems about her that has felt... And I guess some of them were images because some of them were images that Ashley had done to cover in the back and thinking about her. And so, and I don't even know if I want to say I'm a visionary person or like that these directly came from God. There's my little baby making baby noises. But <laughs> I like, but I do, but I'm open to the idea that, that the feelings and impressions I've gotten are real and that they match what I consider to be from the spirit. And so I follow them. And so I have, like, as I follow them and follow them, I have been nourished. And then what has been so meaningful to me is just to hear people's responses to the book itself and to hear first how often it's made people cry, but then also how often it's comforted them and how often it's, it's just given them hope or helped them feel how right it is to think about Heavenly Mother and to talk about her and that she wants to be known and she wants to be close and she cares about us. And one of my very favorite quotes about Heavenly Mother that's in the Mother in Heaven Gospel Topic essay is by Harold B. Lee. And it just basically describes um, that she is close, that she cares about us. And I have it almost all the way ready that I can read it in just a second. Oh, yeah. So he said, we forget that we have a Heavenly Father and a Heavenly Mother who are even more concerned probably than our earthly father and mother, and that influences from beyond are constantly working to try to help us and we do all we can. So I love that he places her as one of the people on the other side of the veil who cares about us and is working for us, and that she is trying to help us, and I've, and I've felt that very much. He really um, extended the image that I think we typically have when we think of Heavenly Mother. 
you know, we, we think of her as a mother and you, you represent biological motherhood really heavily in the poetry. And that's, I think, partly due to your experiences being pregnant and birthing and nursing. And as a woman who has done that, it's a really intense um, and, and powerful moment of life. But you also say in your poem, What the Mother Taught Me, creation is more than procreation. It is snow, birds, trees, moon, and song. And so I love how you tried to imagine her personality and joys and interests that are, are apart from her motherhood, but also enrich and inform her motherhood. I, that poem is one of my favorites. And that line that it starts with, that creation is more than procreation, feels really important because I do... Um, my experiences as an earthly mother have been hugely important to me and probably because I'm right in them, like right in the midst right now because my children are so young. But that, I, but that I think that even more than a birthing woman or a birthing goddess, that she's a creator and a designer and that one of the things she creates are spirit children, but not the only thing that she creates. And how I view God is, is the heavenly parents model from the family proclamation where they're united together and so that they work together on things like creation and salvation. And so I do really love imagining her as being part of the one who created the world that we live in and enjoy, including things like songs or birds or trees. Um, another of the poems that I have, because I do have a lot about birth and some of those things like you mentioned and the more physical aspects of being a mother. And I think that those are important too, but I don't think that they're everything. And I have somewhere I think of her as a writer or a reader or an astronomer or just these other expansive roles too. And that I, that after writing them and being asked questions about how I did write a lot about birth and motherhood, that I also started thinking a lot about Aspiring Mormon Women, their website and, sorry, my child is playing some intense Little Mermaid music. Hi, Cora. Hi, Cora. Can you please go to the other room? Just a second. Hey, Spencer! Yeah, so I love, I love Aspiring Mormon Women's hashtag that they started called Embrace Your Aunt, kind of in response to this idea of whether it's possible for women to have it all. And I think Naomi Watkins, one of the founders of Aspiring Mormon Women, realized that maybe that's not the best question but that maybe we can embrace our and whatever that is. So maybe we can't have everything, but we all are our many things. Like I am a mother and a poet and a writer and a wife and a daughter and a friend and sort of a student and these other things. And so I love thinking of, of Heavenly Mother, someone who embraces her and as well, that she is a Heavenly Mother, but she's also this creator, or this designer, or the other things that she does that are important to her. And so that felt really important to imagine or to think about as well and to place her there, to see her there. Or even because we have scriptural precedent for that with the Father, with Jesus as well. Like, God, are they compared to a potter? Are they compared to these other things that I think might not be literal, but they just give us little tiny hints that can teach us something. And so one of them is thinking of having a mother that she was a potter or a writer, like I said. I love that. You do a really good job of embracing your and, um, and I, I've, we've heard, we've heard 
little Cora in the background here and there. And I know that you have um, made a point of taking your baby with you to conferences and to having them be present in your professional life. And um, I think that sets a really good example to other women that that we can be we can be a mother and whatever else is in our heart. There's also, I have to add, some humor in this book. We've read a lot of the really beautiful, serious poems, but it really, there's some wonderful, lighthearted poems too. You mentioned that you have some based on some popular children's books. And there's one called The Mother is Not Absent and that says, she is taking a long shower, a nap, and using the bathroom by herself. <laughs> and that made me laugh. As a postpartum doula, I know exactly what that means. I, part of me actually thinks it's real. But I, they came to me on a moment that was hard where I just needed like three seconds by myself and wasn't getting it. Mm-hmm. And so started thinking like, oh yeah, we do think of her as absent, but maybe it really is just having Father's turn to take care of us. And so she hands us over and says, okay, you watch them now. Mm-hmm. And so... I don't know if it's wholly satisfying to other people, but it helped comfort me that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the idea of time is a big part of this question. You know, it feels like a really long, long absence, but so does it feel like a long absence when a baby wakes up from his nap and wants his milk and um, cries for two minutes <laughs> waiting for his mom to come get him. Yeah, um, it does. Rachel, thank you so much, and I hope to have you back again soon. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. Bye. If you enjoy this podcast and the hundreds of interviews with modern Mormon women in our online library, please share with your friends and consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.mormonwomen.com to help us fund interview transcription and website support.